Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for who you are. Um, just the love that, um, that you have for us, Father, is just so unfathomable. Um, and we're so unworthy of it, Lord God, yet in your grace, you have stepped towards us. You have moved towards us, Lord. And, um, and Lord, you call us to believe. You call, call us to trust you, Father. Even in times of desperation, Lord, in times where hope seems bleak, Father, you call us to trust in you. And, um, and I thank you for that. I thank you that when we do trust in you, Lord, um, you never fail. You never fail to meet us where we need to be met most. Um, thank you for that, Father. Thank you so much. And I pray as we look into your word um, this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would draw us near to yourself, Father. I pray that if there's any sin in our lives, Father, that you would cause us to repent of that, Lord, and that we would draw near to you, Lord. We love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for your son, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, we are going to continue in Mark this morning, so I'm excited. Keith texted me. He said, would you mind preaching uh, the next passage of Mark? I said, sure thing. Not a problem. So we're going to be in Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. When I saw that, I was like, oh, cool. Thanks for the really short passage. Um, that'll be really easy to, uh, to work through. But, um, but that's all right. That's all right. It's a, it's a really good story um, that we see about Jesus and healing and resurrection. And um, I'm excited to go through it with you. But before we do that, I want you all to think of a time in your own lives where you were desperate, where where you really felt there was no hope whatsoever. And I want you to just kind of hold that for a while. And as we travel through the text this morning, I want you to continue thinking through that moment in your life, that time in your life, that season in your life where you were desperate, where you felt like you had nowhere to go. Because we've all had them. I remember for me, um, a very specific time that comes to mind, um, we had just bought a house. It was a mess. It needed complete renovations. I had lost my job. We had nothing. It was me, my wife, and our one little boy that we had just had. Um, we now have two more. But at that point, it was, there was, it was a desperate moment for us. I had a job, but it wasn't a very good job. It wasn't paying well. And, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. Um, so I'm like, I'm like, all right, I just got to get another job. I'll get another job. I'm like, so I ended up getting a second job at, at Sam's Club. I just, I'm like, you know, I'm going to go for it. And, and that was hard for me. And this is just showing my, my arrogance and my pride. You know, I'm a college educated guy and I'm like, I got to go get a job at Sam's Club. And I felt horrible about myself, which was good for me because I needed some humbling. Um, and all at the same time, I had applied for a teaching job while I was working at Sam's Club. And so I went my first day, I did my training. And, um, and then the next day I got a call that I got this job um, up in Newark as a teacher at a charter school. And I was just like, I was overjoyed. I didn't have to continue working at Sam's Club. But the point is not that I got this job. The point is not that, whatever. The point is that in a desperate situation, I just, I did what I had to do, right? I looked across the dinner table. I saw my wife. I saw my little boy. And I was like, okay, I got to figure something out. I got to figure something out. And as I'm thinking through this this week, this desperation, I thought of another point in my life where I was desperate. And it was, it was my junior year of high school, and, um, and a good friend of mine had died. She, um, she, was, at, she was in Maniloking at, at her grandmother's house, and she was pulling out right onto that main strip as you're going down by the shore, and she got creamed by another car. It was devastating. It was devastating. And, and I was just confused. I was like, what is happening now? 
what is going on? This, this, this girl whom I was friends with, who I grew up with, she doesn't exist anymore. She's not here. And, and I remember just being just overwhelmed with, with hopelessness, desperation. I was, I was depressed. I was struggling. And, and it was that point my mother was attending a church um, up in Oldbridge, Calvary Chapel, Oldbridge, and she, she invited me to go to church with her. And, um, and I became a Christian because of my desperation. I became a Christian because of, because of my lack of hope. I, I knew I needed something. I called out to God in desperation. Like, like I don't understand how this world works, but I, I feel like I need something. And I called out to Jesus and he saved me. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend, and I don't want to convey this to you, that even though we're Christians... We're going to experience times of hopelessness. We're going to experience times of desperation, of struggle. But God is faithful. But God is faithful. In the text this morning, we see two very desperate people. People who are willing to cross and break through social, political, and religious barriers in order to find hope. We start in Mark chapter Five. And just to give a little context before we jump into our passage, um, if you remember, Jesus just calmed the storm and he healed a man that was possessed by a demon. So where we are in the book of Mark is that Jesus is demonstrating his authority, right? He's the boss, right? When we watch the show back with Tony Danza in the 80s, who's the boss? Jesus is the boss. He's the one that's in charge. And what did he do with the storm? He calmed the storm. And if, you, and if you know anything about, about ancient Near Eastern context or, or, or ancient Israelite context, the sea was something that scared the snot out of people. People were scared of this. Everything evil came from the sea. And what does Jesus do? He just says, yeah, just chill out for me. See? Calm down. And it calms down. And then there's this demon, and Jesus just casts out a demon. So Jesus is is demonstrating his authority over nature, over the spirit realm, and now he's going to demonstrate his authority over sickness and over death. Over sickness and over death. It just keeps on getting more intense till finally he shows us how authoritative he truly is. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus our Messiah. Starts here in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So a ruler of the synagogue. This is not like a slouch, right? He's someone who's important. Um, he's not a king. He's not, I don't want us to over-realize the importance, but he is a man of, who, in a dignified position in the community. And what does this man do? He, he runs to Jesus and he falls at his feet in a very undignified way. Why? Because he's desperate. He's desperate. He knows that his daughter is at the point of death, at death's door, we might say. His daughter is at death's door. Now, under normal circumstances, someone like this, this ruler of the synagogue, probably wouldn't have associated with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was somewhat of a revolutionary. Jesus was saying things that, was, that were disrupting the status quo. 
Right? This guy probably, maybe he wouldn't have anything against Jesus, but for political and religious sort of reasons, he might be like, eh, you know, like, I see what you're doing. Maybe it makes sense, but like, I got a synagogue to run, and I don't know, I don't need Rome coming knocking at our door, and you're just causing trouble for everybody. He would probably keep himself at arm's length. But what he does in his moment of desperation is he runs towards him and falls at his feet and says, you got to help me, Jesus. I heard about you. I know you've done some pretty miraculous things. Word spreading about you. I need help because my daughter is at death's door. Can you help me? Can you help me? He falls at his feet. Right. But this is so interesting to me because so often we have we have views, we have we have convictions, we have all sorts of ideas without experience. We have ideas without experience. So so what's happening here is that, yes, maybe prior to his daughter being sick and at death's door, he might have had some views about Jesus. He might have had some thoughts. He might have had some convictions. But when the rubber met the road and he realized my daughter's dying, he throws all those away. Right? Because something got near to him. Suffering, pain became near to him. It became real. And he realized what he had to do. He realized, you know what? It doesn't matter if, if people in my synagogue are upset. It doesn't matter if Rome sends all sorts of legions down to crush us. I've got to help my daughter. And if, and if you have children and you're in this room, you know that you do whatever you've got to do to help your kid. You do whatever you got to do. And some of you probably have some stories where you've done some crazy things to protect your children. I'm tempted to share a story, but I don't know if it's appropriate. But anyway, <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, but this is what's happening. This man is desperate. This man is desperate. So he asks for help. And what do we see Jesus do? Jesus goes with him. Jesus goes with him. He responds with compassion. He responds by saying, yeah, I'm going to come with you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. And so we're thinking, cool, right? Jesus is going to enter into this situation. Jesus is going to help this man's daughter. He's going to travel there. He's going to lay his hands on her. She's going to be okay. And we're just like, sweet, we know what's going to happen. But then we see there's an interruption here in the text. Something happens as he's heading on his way. It says, and he went with him, verse 24, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear, trembling, fell down before him and trembling, and felt, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. There's an interruption. Jesus is on his way to go heal this man's daughter, and he is interrupted. There's a crowd about him, and he feels 
that something, that his power has left him. He doesn't know who touched him because people are touching him everywhere, but he feels the power leaving his body and he stops and he says, who touched me? Who touched me? And the woman who lived 12 years with this discharge of blood, this social outcast, why was she a social outcast? We don't typically ostracize people who are sick. We don't do that. Why is this woman, why is this woman, why do I assume that she's a social outcast? Because according to Jewish law, if you have a discharge of blood, if a woman is experiencing that particular time, then she is rendered unclean. And anyone who comes in contact with her is rendered unclean. And if you read a little bit further in Leviticus 15, starting in verse 19, and you can look at that if you want a little bit later, what happens if you have a continued discharge of blood, you are still considered unclean. It doesn't matter. There's no sort of way around it. You are unclean. So she lived her life for 12 years unclean, meaning that she was ostracized from community. She was she was distanced from people, from, from other people who would have been the people of God, Israelites. They would not have anything to do with her because she was unclean. Imagine that. Imagine being ostracized for 12 years. Imagine not having community. Imagine not being able to enjoy even what you all were enjoying this morning as you were talking and having coffee and and enjoying one another's company. Imagine not being able to do that. Not for a week, not for a month, not even for a year or five years, but for 12 years. I've been married for 10 years. That's a long, I mean, in my brain, it's a long time. Some of you have been married much longer, but in my brain, like 10 years, wow, that's a long time. Plus two... That's how long I would not be allowed to be in the presence of other people and have contact with other people because they wouldn't want to be unclean. She lived, she lived a hard life, this woman. And she was desperate. She needed help. I remember, I remember as a kid, I got grounded all the time. I was just constantly getting grounded. It was like it was a joke among my friends. Like, hey, John, can you hang out? And now I'm grounded. Oh, okay. Like always, I was always grounded. And I remember how frustrating it was to be grounded. And if you're younger sitting here, you know how much, how much it hurts when you can't hang out with your friends for like an hour. It's hard. It's, it's really like it's a, it's a suffering. It's a cross you have to bear when you can't hang out with your friends for a few days. Um, there's a little sarcasm there, right? But it was, I remember hating it so much because all teenagers want to do is be with their friends. That's all they want to do. There's like nothing else that matters more except being with your friends. And when you get that removed from you, it is like, it's, it's the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. And with the way teenage brains are developing, it's even worse, right? It's just a mess. It's like, man, I can't be with my friends. Life's horrible. I hate my parents. I hate my life. Everything's horrible. And man, it's horrible. It's just the worst. Now imagine if that's 12 years. And you can't be with anyone. This is the kind of situation that this this woman is dealing with. Unclean. Closed off from the temple. She couldn't worship. It's a big deal that she is dealing with. And, And what does she do? 
in her desperation, she crosses social barriers, religious barriers, so that she might, she saw a glimmer of hope. There's a superst- there was a superstition of the day that if you touched the clothing of, of, of a prophet or a teacher, that there was some sort of healing or magic there that she might get healing from. So she's like, you know what? This, this, this is my shot. This is my shot. I'm going to go for it. So she makes her way through the crowd and she touches his garment and immediately the text says the blood flow dries up. She's clean. And Jesus says, who touched me? Who touched me? And the disciples start saying, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And I love when the disciples push back on Jesus. Like, all of a sudden, like, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, Jesus, what, what, are, you, what are you doing, man? What do you mean someone touched you? Of course someone touched you. There's like 4,000 people here touching you. Like, stop being ridiculous. We got work to do. Remember, there's a little girl dying. Let's go. Get on it. We have to go. And he's like, no, no, no. Someone touched me. Someone touched me. And the woman makes herself known. She makes herself known, and she says this. But the woman, well, she doesn't say, we don't know what she says. says, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She comes clean. She comes clean. She's like, yeah, it was me. I touched you. I touched you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's like she's probably expecting, I would imagine, and again, this is, this is, this is me just imagining. Like, I, I bet she's thinking, like, oh, here I go again. All right, what else did I do wrong, right? I've been, I've been treated horribly for the last 12 years. Doctors have, have extorted me for all my money. I'm broke. What did I do now, teacher? What does Jesus say? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. There's no magic in my garments This is not some sort of superstitious thing that you've discovered. Your faith has made you well. And he forces her to come clean. Why? So that she knows that it's not about some magic trick. It's not about some superstition. But it's because she, in her desperation, humbled herself and believed that Jesus could make her whole. She believed there's faith being exercised here. And it's faith that serves as the conduit by which God's grace extends into this world. It's faith. It's faith. And it's faith in something particular. Right? We, we see signs, right? You can go into to home goods. You can go into Pottery Barn and you can see those like cool little like rustic signs that say like faith, hope, and love or like whatever, right? You see these things and you're like, oh, that's so cool. That's so great. Faith, hope, and love. That's all I love it. But... If faith doesn't have a substance to it, if faith is not actually directed towards something specific and particular, it really means nothing. If I put my faith in this stool to save me from my sins, then I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I can exercise all the faith in the world, but this stool, while it is very nice and chic, it's not going to save me from my sins. It's not going to make me clean. But faith in the Messiah, faith in the Messiah is different. And that's what's happening in this text here. This woman is putting, and maybe not even knowing that it's the Messiah, she puts faith 
and Jesus then she speaks it out. She says, yeah, it's, it, I just, I just, I've been sick and I needed help and I thought if I can touch your garment. And he says, no, 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 it's not my garment. It's your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. And then he says something, which we can just read over it and kind of be like, oh, that's nice. He's such a kind teacher. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Go in peace. This is a, like a Hebrew idiom that he uses to, to send her on her way. Go in peace. Go in shalom. Go and be whole. Go and be complete. I have made you whole. Jesus is telling her. Now go walk in that wholeness. Go walk in that completeness. Go in peace. It's not just see you later. You have been made whole. And now she is called to go in that wholeness. Because now what happens as a result of her disease, her blood drying up? Well, she's no longer ceremonially unclean. She could enter into the temple. She could worship her God in spirit and in truth. Why? Because Jesus the Messiah made her clean. Jesus the Messiah made her clean. Typically what would have happened if an unclean person or woman touched a clean person or individual, that person would be rendered unclean, but that's not what happens in this situation, right? Jesus makes her clean. That's what Jesus does for us when we believe. Jesus makes us clean when we believe. At that point of desperation, wherever we might be, whatever circumstance you might be going through in this life, we can fall at the feet of Jesus and He will give us hope because He is our hope. And that does not mean that life will be easy. That does not mean that life will be squeaky clean. But it does mean that we will have access to God. We have access to God because Jesus makes us clean. By his blood, we are made clean. We sang about that this morning. The blood of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. This is, this is like, a, like a little a little foretaste of what is going to happen. This is a foretaste of what's going to happen next, right? As Jesus is marching his way toward the cross, as we read throughout the Gospels, he's, he's getting closer and closer and closer, and it's just things are amping up and things are getting a little bit more intense each chapter as we read through, and that's what's happening here. He's giving us a sneak peek. Mark is showing us something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Keep an ear out. She was ceremonially unclean and now she's clean. Something's happening. Pay attention. And Jesus saw fit that this made sense to interrupt his walk to save the little girl's life. He saw that this was a good reason to stop for a minute. Because this woman in her desperation, 12 years of pain, 12 years of marginalization, 12 years of being ostracized, she is now being brought back into the fold. By whom? By Jesus Christ. The text goes on in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. 
Why trouble the teacher any further? Imagine that. Imagine you're the father. You just throw yourself at the feet of Jesus, right? Because we're back in the next story, right? Like, this interruption is over. We're back. You throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. He says, yep, I'm going to come with you. All of a sudden, right, there's that little bit of hope springing forth in you, like, oh, maybe this is going to work out. And then you hear word that your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. I mean, you're sinking at that point. You're, you're done. My daughter is dead. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. In those days, you would hire professional mourners to, to assist in the mourning process, to assist in the grieving process. And they would be wailing, and there would be flute players, and there would be all sorts of commotion because everyone was mourning death. This was a, a, a cultural tradition that took place in those days. When he had entered, Jesus said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They mocked him. They scoffed at him. Like, this is the second time Jesus is questioned and like, right? Like the disciples are like, what are you doing, bro? Why are you stopping? Everyone's touching you. Stop being foolish. I can imagine the words that were coming from the disciples as he stops to figure out who touched him. And now he goes into this next situation. And what happens? They start laughing at him, right? Professional mourners know when someone's dead. They're like, all right, bro, he's dead. She's dead. We know dead people. And this one is surely dead. And they laugh at him. They laugh at him. But he put them all outside. I, I can imagine. Like, I always like, kind of think in my head, like, what would this be like? Jesus like, all right, can you leave now, please? Thanks. That's very, yeah, very funny. Go, go laugh outside. He put them all outside and took the child, child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age odd detail to insert and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged that no one should know this and he told them to give her something to eat she's only sleeping jesus says right jesus knows she's dead this is not like jesus is confused this is not a story of someone just getting woken up from sleep she was dead this is just an expression that jesus uses she's only sleeping and she's mocked to the, about this. And then what Jesus does is he grabs her by the hand. And it's here. It says, Talitha Kumi. And basically what that means is, honey, wake up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up, sweetheart. Kind of what you would do to your, to your little daughter or little boy on a Sunday morning to get them ready for church. It's time to wake up. It's very gentle. There's no magic sort of like formula that he uses he just kind of grabs her by the hand and says, wake up, sweetheart. It's time. Time to get up. I picture my own head, like, going into my daughter's room and, and waking her up, although it's not often as delightful as that. She doesn't like to get up in the morning. Um, but, <laughs> but that's what's going on here, and I think there's a reason why that's going on. I don't think 
I, Jesus doesn't want us to, or, or who, the writer, he doesn't want us to think that there's any sort of special formula that Jesus has to use. It's just because it's Jesus that she wakes up. That's why. Right? There's no special words that, she has to, that he has to say. This isn't like an abracadabra magic trick. There's no superstition here. Jesus wants everyone to know who's watching that it's my authority is why she is going to get up. It's my authority. Why? Because Jesus not only has authority over nature, not only has authority over the spirit realm, but he has authority over disease and he has authority over death itself. And that's what he does here. He says, wake up, sweetheart. And he grabs her by the hand. Another thing that would have made him ritually and ceremonially unclean to touch a dead body. But what happens? She's made alive. She's made alive. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. When this girl was born, that other woman contracted her disease, her blood flow. There's something going on there. And he strictly charged that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's go back to verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Only believe. That's what's happening in our passage this morning. This is a simple call to us, a challenge and an encouragement that we, the people of God, would trust Jesus Christ. That we would have faith that he is, in fact, on the throne and ruling over all of creation. Do we believe that? Do we believe that in the midst of your financial struggles this morning, in the midst of any disease you might be encountering, do we believe that Jesus Christ himself is seated on the throne? And while this life might be difficult and while this life might offer all sorts of struggles and trials and pain and anguish, Jesus the Messiah is seated on the throne ruling over all of it. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? That one day we will see him face to face and one day everything around us will be made new. All of the turmoil, all of the suffering, the pain will be reversed and Jesus' presence will be manifested throughout all of creation in a way that undoes all that is wrong with this world. And here as we read through, we're catching a foretaste of that. We're catching a foretaste of that. As disease is healed here, as death is turned into life here, as marriages are healed in our own contexts, as children come back to their parents who might have gone astray, as, as good things, as the poor are fed, as babies are saved from the womb, these are little inbreakings of the kingdom that Jesus is trying to show us Guys, I'm still in charge. I know it doesn't seem like that right now, but I'm in charge. And we get to see little glimpses of that as we walk through life. And that's what's happening as we read through this story. There's little glimpses that Mark is trying to show us as Jesus was performing his ministry that he wanted them to know, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. And I stand in authority over death itself. 
over death itself. That one day, I'm going to hang on a cross, but three days later, I'm going to come up out of that grave and be risen to new life. And all who believe in me will also be risen to new life. We sang about that this morning. We sang that we believe in the resurrection. Do we believe in the resurrection that one day we will be brought to new life? And we get a foretaste of that this morning as you guys are fellowshipping with one another, as you're loving one another, as you're hugging one another, you get a foretaste of that resurrection life on Sunday mornings when you come together. As people come into your homes and you get to share Christ with them, you get to be hospitable with them, you get a foretaste of the resurrection. As people transfer from death to life and and experience that conversion in Jesus Christ, we're getting a foretaste of the resurrection. And oh, how glorious it is when we get to be a part of these things. And Jesus is calling us off the sidelines because guess what? Jesus is in heaven right now. And we might be wondering, well, what does it look like here today? What happens now? You're in heaven and we're here. But oh, the beauty of the resurrection and the beauty of the ascension is that he sent his spirit, filled his church so that Jesus Christ, the spirit of Christ dwells within us. And we are the body of Christ here on earth, living out this very ministry that he started some 2000 years ago. We get to be the hands and feet of Jesus, proclaiming good news to the captives, setting the captives free, right? Good news to the poor, setting the captives free, sharing the good news of the resurrection, feeding the poor, caring for those who are on the outside, just as he did. He models this beautifully and he gives us the power to do it. And we do this all while proclaiming our resurrected king. This is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Oh, that's so good. I love it. I love being a Christian because we get to be a part of something that is so much bigger than us. So much bigger than us. And we are the hands and feet that travel through this world empowered by the Spirit of Christ Himself. Those of us, when we believe in Jesus, we are brought into union with Him. That means all the good things He gets, we get. We get. As His, as his younger brothers and sisters, we get. And then we also get charged to do the very thing that He did. To pick up our cross. To touch what is unclean. To enter into circumstances. To be mocked to be laughed at, to be scorned, so that we might be conduits of that very resurrection life in the world around us. I used this example before um, in another sermon. I'm not sure if I shared it here once. But I always imagine that the body of Christ is like this extension cord that reaches into heaven. And, And mind, it's an analogy, so it's not perfect. But it's this extension cord that reaches into heaven and, and, and what we draw from that extension cord, right? Because if you plug an extension cord, it gives you power to wherever you need it, right? And if you plug it into a circular saw or a fan or whatever, that particular item has power. Now, the problem is if we're not plugging it into places, then the power is just sitting in this room. And, and God doesn't want the power to just sit in this room. He wants us to plug into other areas of our life, whether that's our marriages, our parenting, whether that's um, a local pregnancy center, whether that's a local 
food bank or whatever the case. He wants us to use the power that he's given us, the power of God, the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that indwells us. He wants us to enter in with that power into other circumstances, places that might seem unclean, places that might seem broken, places that might seem hard. Um, he wants us to enter into our own lives with that, right? There's, there's junk in our own lives that we're not even aware of, right? Picture an iceberg, right? What do we see in an iceberg? We just see the top like 10% of it, and then below is that entire thing. That's, you know, that's what took out the Titanic, right? And that's our lives, right? We, we kind of show this little 10%, but then deep below, under the surface, there's all sorts of mess that we need to deal with, whether it's our past, whether it's some sort of sin that's got a grip on us. And Jesus is saying, man, just allow my power to work in that. And how does he allow his power to work in that? Through his people. His people. And I've shared this with you before. It's the people of God that manifest the grace of God. Right? It's, it's, it's us. It's, it's this time that you guys spend in the morning. It's, it's helping someone with an electric bill if they can't pay it. It's that sort of stuff. It's, it's when, it's when you know, my wife and I were struggling financially and someone would drop off groceries from our church. They would just drop off groceries and say, here. Or it's another, another couple that, that told us, here's 100 bucks. We made a reservation for you to go after your anniversary because we were going to go to a diner. And they said, no, you're not going to go to a diner on your anniversary. We're going to pay for you to go out to eat. It's giving dignity to one another in the name of Christ. Always in the name of Christ, right? If we don't do these things in the name of the resurrected Christ, we're just, you know, we're just doing good works for the sake of doing good works. And, and that's not, you know, we do them in the name of Christ. We build bridges between communities that are broken. We care for one another. It's fun to be a Christian. It's hard to be a Christian. Because it means we have to give up the things that we might want most. Because all that stuff, plugging that extension cord into the lives of people, doing what Jesus did as he, as he touched what was unclean, allowed what was unclean to touch him, as he made public the unclean person touching him, as he enters into this situation where he's mocked, laughed at, scorned, this is what it means to be a Christian. It means to pick up our cross and follow him. But in picking up our cross and following him, we are guaranteed that we will be risen to new life. Oh, it's glorious. It's glorious to be a Christian. And it's by faith that we walk this life. And faith brings peace, shalom. Faith brings healing. And faith ultimately brings new life. By God's grace. That's a glorious truth that we have. That's what Mark's trying to show us in this text this morning. There were two people this morning as we read through our text, that we're desperate. Are we desperate? Are we desperate for that hope that we can only find in Christ? Are we desperate? God is asking us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact that you entered in to this world, Father. As a man from Nazareth, a humble, poor, regular, normal, ordinary man, but oh, not ordinary, because you are God. Thank you that you entered in and you 
died on our behalf. You lived on our behalf and you died on our behalf, Father, and you were risen to new life. And in you, we have all things, Father. Thank you for that. I pray that this morning, that anyone in this room who is struggling in their faith, Father, would cast themselves on you. Lord, we love you. In Christ's name, amen.